Hi, everybody. It's John Dickerson. Welcome or welcome back to the Connection Point podcast. At the end of this episode, I'd encourage you to take a moment and check out cp.news on your web browser. Connection Point is a church that is fully online, and you can follow Jesus one day at a time from anywhere in the world with us. Well, I pray this message inspires you and challenges you today to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hey, you guys want to give each other a round of applause for making it out through the snow. Is anyone else missing your hour of sleep? I am. I want my hour back. I miss my hour. Well, hey, we are in the final week of this series called I Am Strong, and I want to make sure you know that there's an audio book that goes with this series, and today's a great time to get it because uh, it's free, and it is all about finding God in your pain and suffering. We've been on this topic for six weeks. We're landing the plane on it today, but there is a ton of additional material in that free audiobook. If you know someone who's suffering, someone who's in a hospital bed, or they're going through a divorce, this is a great thing that you can send to them for free. They don't have to be a reader because they can just put on the audio and listen to it. It's also a great thing for you to kind of bookmark for yourself if you're not going through suffering right now for down the road in this world that's full of pain when you do, uh, and you're thinking, where's God? That's what that book is for. So we wanna make sure you're able to get that for free today. Hey, does anyone remember your first car? Uh, Here's what mine looked like. I had a 1986 Volkswagen Golf. Mine was actually red, but it was a four-door just like this. It was a five-speed manual transmission, and I loved that car. I bought it for $650 cash in Michigan. Because it was in Michigan, it was rusty, but it was such a fun car to drive, and it had a few quirks. Uh, Perhaps the most significant quirk was this. Every time I would make a left-hand turn, if it was a sharp enough turn, the horn would honk. And, um, you know, as a 16-year-old, I took the steering column apart and tried to fix it. I never could fix it. So it got to the point where if I was out driving with my buddies, if we were making a left-hand turn, we would all just wave because we knew that the car would just honk on its own. And it was a great car, but it was broken in some ways. And that's very much symbolic of the world we live in. It's a great world. Uh, You can fall in love. You can enjoy a sunrise or a sunset. There are mountains and the Grand Canyon and oceans and beaches and so much beauty. And yet, pain enters all of our lives, sometimes through cancer, sometimes through a broken relationship, sometimes in our own internal emotional wellness. We're not mentally well at times, if we're honest, and pain enters our lives. In fact, we zoom out even further, we look at the whole world, and it's like anytime you open a news website, you see one nation firing missiles into apartment buildings in another nation. You see places in the world where people are starving to death, even though our world has more than enough to feed everyone. You see uh, bad police officers killing innocent people, and you see bad people killing innocent police officers. There's all this injustice and racism and pain It's a broken world. I've been reading a book about a guy named Steve Jobs. If you're not familiar, you should probably know who he is because he invented your iPhone or your iPad or your Apple computer. Founder of Apple Computer Company, inventor of the iPod, and then had this genius idea to merge a cell phone with an iPod and give it connection to the internet, and it has changed our world. Uh, Tragically, Steve Jobs died at the age of 56 from a form of cancer. 
But I've been reading this book about his life because he's such a world changer. And I came across a, a part of his story that I'd never heard before. Steve was raised in a Christian home, one of those kind of old school denominations called Lutheran, where we've got a bunch of extra traditions with Christianity. And when he was 13, this magazine showed up in the mail at their house. Steve was a bright young guy. He was a voracious reader. And as a 13-year-old, he read this Life magazine cover to cover, and there was this article about these children in India who were starving to death. And he had heard about God at church. And so he marched into Sunday school the following Sunday. And he went to the priest who led the Sunday school for the 13-year-olds. And he said, if your God is so good, why are these kids dying? That is a really good question. That's a really important question. That's the kind of questions we encourage our young people to ask. That's why we've got a, a PhD on our staff specifically for our teenagers because these are great questions. And what's so sad to me is that the priest that day didn't really have an intellectually significant answer for a 13-year-old Steve Jobs. And that day he turned away from believing in the God of Christianity and never turned back as far as we know. What is the answer to that question? Or to phrase it another way, what can you do when your pain leads you to question if God is good? It's not a, really a question of will you ever question if God is good. It's probably a question of when will you? Have you ever wondered this when you're hurting? Maybe right now, what pain are you presently in that causes you to doubt if God's good and he's almighty, how is this happening? You know, I was a skeptic for a season. I still have a lot of friends who are atheists and agnostics and kind of intellectual skeptics. And here's something I've observed over the years in my life and in theirs. We'll hide behind these questions of like, well, if God's good, why are children starving on the other side of the world? But what we're really saying, that's a valid question, but we're also saying if God's good, why am I hurting? Steve Jobs was adopted as a child, and he knew this. His adoptive parents told him his whole upbringing, um, we adopted you. And it's well known that he lived his whole life with this deep wound around why did my birth mom and birth dad not want me? And I have to wonder if that 13-year-old in Palo Alto, when he marched in there with that magazine for that priest and said, if God's good, why are kids hurting in India? If what he was actually saying, if God is good, why is this kid hurting? There will come times in life when you have to reconcile, if I believe in a good God, why am I going through this? Or why are those people going through that? And I'm not going to pretend that in just one sermon I can give you all the answers to this, because there are literally hundreds. But I want you to know that there are answers for this that both resound in the human heart emotionally, but are also intellectually valid to the rational mind. For example, some of the most intelligent people who've ever lived, Isaac Newton, father of modern physics, Blaise Pascal, Johannes Kepler, all three of them believed in the Christianity of the Bible, and all three of them looked at the suffering in the world and looked at every potential answer and said, Christianity is actually the most logical answer to that question if we really lean into it and ask it. So you don't have to check your brain at the door. Uh, you'll find that there's a lot of intellectual substance 
but there's also emotional significance. And so right now, I would encourage you to just, um, even if you don't yet believe in God, kind of call out and say, God, if you're there, I want to know you. I want to know your answer to this question. I'm not going to comprehensively cover all of it today, but I want to start with a, a really clear starting point, and it is some words of Jesus when he said in John chapter 13, for God did not send his son, Jesus is referring to himself, I didn't come into the world to condemn you, but actually I came into the world to save you. So Jesus is kind of saying, hey, if you all thought you're like on this conveyor belt that's just headed for paradise, and I came into this world like some hockey player, and I'm like here to knock you off because you were on a great destiny without me. No, no, it's the opposite. You're all on a conveyor belt that leads to death and darkness and separation from God, and I came into the world to help you, to give you life and light and reconnect you to God. This is a fundamental paradigm shift in our view of God, and you could summarize it this way. God does not create our problems. He fixes them. You see, it's a logical fallacy to say, well, if there are problems in the universe, then there can't be a good God. It's a logical fallacy because there are billions of other beings that have free wills in the universe, all the humans, all the angels, all the demons, And so to attribute every bad thing to to the creator, it doesn't necessarily mean the pain is coming from him. What if other beings have created the pain and his heart is to help you heal and to deliver you out of the pain? What if that's who God is? And if we're to consider him through that lens, it changes. I want to give you a really brief summary of all of human history, past and actually future. The whole human story can be summarized in a few minutes, actually through three gardens. The first is the Garden of Eden, and maybe you've heard about it, but you need to know it was a literal place here on planet Earth before sin invaded. And we're actually told in the opening chapters of the Bible that here's what God wants for you. It's what he created for Adam and Eve. They had perfect bodies. I'll take one. Great. You know, they were both completely fit. They're in love with each other. Uh, He says, be fruitful and multiply. Like, get it on. Have a blast. This place is yours. Here's all the food you need. I mean, we got to get out of our mind that God's this, like, stodgy. He's the creator of pleasure. He's the creator of joy and of life. And the the garden, which was here on planet Earth, and the whole planet that he gave to them was a place where there's no death, where there's no sin, where there's no pain, where there's no suffering. And perhaps you've heard this part of the story where there's an angel from heaven who uses his free will, his name is Lucifer, to rebel against God. And he goes into the garden, and where God has told Adam and Eve, hey, this place is yours, it's yours to take care of, Do whatever you want, but I've got to tell you, there's one choice, that if you make this one choice, you have the knowledge of good, but you don't have the knowledge of evil. And trust me, you're better off without the knowledge of evil, but I love you enough to dignify you with a free will, so I'm telling you, pretty much don't push this button for the knowledge of evil. And if you do, all sorts of problems are going to follow, including death. 
Well, Lucifer, Satan, slithers up next to Eve and he says, did God really say that? Can you really trust God? See, this is the the nature of Satan, to make you think, to whisper in your ear with his forked tongue, you can't really trust God. He's not really good. And he deceives Adam and Eve to pushing the button to say, we want the knowledge of evil. That sounds exciting. In the Bible, knowledge means more than just head knowledge. It means to experience. So they push the button, we want to experience evil, and guess what? They get to. One of their sons kills their other son. Their bodies start to age. This whole curse on planet Earth gets unleashed by the choice that they make. You know, I want you to imagine for a moment that you've got a coworker, and your coworker, uh, let's say her name's Susan, and she keeps talking about her husband, but you never see him. You know, and like there's company picnics, there's all these things. She keeps talking about her husband, but you never see him. One day she invites you and your spouse or you and someone you care about over for dinner. And so you show up and you get to Susan's house and dinner's on the table and her husband's still not there. And you're like, where, where is Billy? You're always talking about him. She's like, oh, he's down in the basement. Go ahead, go down and look. And you go down in the basement and there's a man chained to the wall. And you're like, Susan, What is going on? She's like, well, that's Billy. I have to chain him to the wall or else he leaves. He'd leave me. So he was going to leave me, so I chained him to the wall, but now he stays here and he does the chores. And you'd be like, I'm out of here. This is like a horror movie, right? It would, that just, we laugh at that, right? Because it'd be like, no, that's not a spouse. That's a slave. That's not love. That's slavery. And yet I've met some pretty intellectually pompous people who judge God. And when I say, hey, what's your beef with this God? And they say, you know, essentially, if God was good, there wouldn't be any consequences. There wouldn't be any pain in the world. He wouldn't, if if this God is real and this story is real, he wouldn't have let Satan deceive Adam and Eve. Or he wouldn't have let Adam and Eve rebel. Why did God allow them to make the choices that have hurt and harmed us? Very simply, he dignified They're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. He dignified you enough to give you a free will that you can make choices that matter, not pretend choices. So make your choices wisely. And he gave Adam and Eve a free will to make choices that matter, that matter so much that they ended up cursing all of planet Earth. God's not a God of slavery, but of choice. Well, then we see in this second garden, Gethsemane, what happens is that Almighty God, when our creation is messed up, now everyone's born with broken DNA. We get sick and die. Broken relationships, broken nations with war, broken planet with famine and drought. And God looks down, and the God who created a perfect garden steps down into a garden where there are thorns and there are thistles. And he decides, I will have their thorns of their consequences pressed into my brow. I will take the punishment for their sins. He models free will again, but perfectly, right? Adam and Eve couldn't choose to trust God even when they were in a perfect setting. Jesus is in a perfectly horrific, painful setting. And he chooses to trust God the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. If going to the cross is what will set people right, then I will do it. Now, as a result... What did he say to the thief on the cross next to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the third garden. 
Sometimes we call it heaven. Sometimes we call it the kingdom of God. But uh, it's not this ethereal, detached from a body existence. I'll show you later in Revelation, there's a river of life. The tree of life that was in Genesis makes a reappearance, meaning we'll be immortal as we eat from its fruit. And there will be a real point in the future, and that thief on the cross is already there, when we will be in this lush, rich garden called paradise with the God who created us for such an existence. So if you want to summarize all of humanity, we'll put these side by side. In Eden, Satan deceives, thorns enter, pain enters, death enters, and humans are divorced from God by our own choice, or our ancestors' choice. Gethsemane, Jesus believes the Father. Jesus carries our thorns. He endures our pain. He defeats death. He restores humanity. And then the third garden for all who've trusted in Jesus, Satan will be banished. Thorns will vanish. Tears will be wiped away. Immortality will be restored through the tree of life. God and humans will be together again through Jesus. That's the human story. Now, if you want to go deeper on this, um, look in John chapter 20, verse 15. When Jesus rises from the dead and Mary's out there, and at first she doesn't think it's Jesus. Who does she think he is? A gardener. It's the nature of God to tend to growing things. It's the nature of God to nourish your roots. He wants you to grow. He wants you to thrive. This is who God is. Well, I'm going to give you now kind of a, another layer of paint on this. And I want to give you four moments th that you want to have clarity on if you're going to sort out a good God and a painful existence. Four key moments. You can take pictures of these if you want. I'm going to go fast through them. The first is this. God created a perfect existence for you. Right, we saw that. But Satan and our ancestors chose to pollute it. They chose to contaminate it. Now, does that mean God's not sovereign or, or couldn't have stopped them? Why didn't he stop them? I don't fully know other than this mystery of if someone's chained in your basement, that's probably not love. And God expresses a volitional choice love to us, and he wants to see who's going to express a volitional choice love back to him. I, I don't pretend to fully understand this mystery, but Genesis is super clear. God's not the one who sinned. God's not the one who caused all this problem. In fact, here's the heart of God. Right in the very first chapter of the Bible, God blessed them, them being Adam and Eve. This is God's heart toward you, to bless. And he says, be fruitful, increase, fill the earth, the Garden of Eden is yours. Here are the keys. You're responsible for what you do with it. And he was very clear. You and your ancestors or your descendants, they're, they're going to take the consequences of what you choose. Genesis 2 verse 4, this is when Satan slithers up and whispers. He says, you will not actually die. It's a flat-out lie. And there's a note here. Satan's primary weapon for destroying people and his primary weapon for destroying you, your kids, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, anyone you care about, Satan's primary weapon is to deceive them into believing that God is untrustworthy. Just like he sadly did to that 13-year-old boy in Palo Alto, California, Steve Jobs. 
to think, oh, then I can't trust God. That's exactly where Satan wants you. He wants you to think God's against you. He wants you to think God's cruel or untrustworthy. Well, what are the consequences or the results of Adam and Eve's choice? I want to give you a picture. This is a a real place in Colorado called Rocky Flats. Looks really nice. Uh, You can see here the beauty of the Colorado mountains. And this is a picture of uh, what Francis Schaeffer called the glorious ruin. If you look at every human being and at all of creation, there's still glorious glory, like those mountains, but there's this ruin. You see, Rocky Flats was actually a a town of 5,000 built uh, to manufacture nuclear weapons during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. In fact, I uh, read a story of a woman named Judy Padilla. She interviewed for a job there. The pay was great. The benefits were great. Every day she'd drive her white Volkswagen Beetle into this little town, and she worked in one of these things called the glove box. Now, the glove box had all this barrier to protect you from the radiation, and you'd literally build the nuclear warheads there with plutonium and stuff. Well, it looked like a great job. Judy had a great life until in her 50s she developed breast cancer from leaning up against that radioactive material. In fact, it started, all her coworkers started to get cancer. Uh, The FBI actually raided the facility and found out that the company managing it was lying about the radiation counts. And thousands of people have gotten cancer as a result. And though it looked nice, if you look back at the picture of it, there was an invisible contamination of radiation. And in the same way, planet Earth, there are moments where it looks nice. But live long enough and you'll find out there's this invisible contamination of an evil bent inside of me, inside of you. You look at, any time you open up a news website and right now you see a nation invading another nation. You see places in the planet where there's plenty of resources but people are starving because of the greed of others. There's this contamination. None of us are gonna make it out of this Rocky Flats world without some cancer, some loss, some sickness, some pain. We live in Rocky Flats as a metaphor. Well, if our world's contaminated, then what's God gonna do about it? That's the second thing you need to know when you go through suffering is that in Jesus... God chose to enter into your pain. So think about this. The creator who answers to no one, who could have just flicked us off into oblivion after we messed up planet Earth, he chooses to leave the comfort of paradise to come into this broken world, cry our tears, feel our pain, Feel the sting of rejection. And he enters into your pain. Why? Well, not only so that he can relate to you and he can, but also so that he can deliver you out. He entered in so that you can exit from your pain. Matthew 26 is this moment when Jesus, who is fully God in a human form on planet Earth to reconnect us back to God. It's the night before he's crucified. And he goes into Gethsemane, which is the second garden. And he's there with his disciples. And he says, sit here while I go over to pray. Because essentially, now that I'm human, I have to use my free will to decide, will I choose to go to the cross? Did you know that Gethsemane still exists? We know right where it is because it was on a mount called the Mount of Olives. 
that mountain is still there. It hasn't moved. I want to show you a little video I came across of the Garden of Gethsemane uh, just this last year. Go ahead and take a look. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, the site of one of the most profound moments in human history, where Jesus is so overwhelmed by what he knows is coming tomorrow, which is death and crucifixion, the worst death the ancient world had to offer. He's so overwhelmed, he's crying, he's sweating blood, he's praying, and in the face of the worst possible outcome, he says to God, what frankly most of us can't say to God about our situations that compared to what he went through, are big, but not that big. He says, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And what's so moving about that is that what made him so resolute is the love that he had for you and for me. And it's in this garden that even in the face of sheer agony, he said, this is gonna hurt, but what would hurt worse is not having you in my family. You know, in Jesus' time, farmers would press the oil out of olives. We still use olive oil today. It was used for healing then. And the way they would do it is there was a stone press, kind of like a stone gutter, and they would place the olives in there, and they would push over the top of the olives a very heavy, big, circular stone. And as that stone, the weight of it crushed the olive, the oil would come out. And this gutter had a little hole at the bottom for the, the oil to run down out of, oil for healing. In the language that Jesus spoke, Hebrew, the words for an olive press are got shamanim. And in English, we say it Gethsemane, which is just a literal alliteration from Hebrew to English of olive press. Jesus prays as he's sweating drops of blood in a place called the Olive Press. And spiritually, he's crushed and he's pressed to produce the healing of the nations, the forgiveness of sins. This God who had given us a perfect world that we messed up steps down into our thorns and our thistles to be pressed in an olive press, suffering for us, suffering with us. So that anyone who calls out to him, anyone who will use their free will to just be humble enough to say, God, help, Jesus, I believe, will be healed, will be helped. On that night, Matthew 26 tells us that Jesus took Peter and James and John, or the other two here, and I want you to get the significance of these words. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Maybe you've got this visual in your mind that because Jesus is perfect, he never was sad. But it's not sinful to feel sad. Jesus is sorrowful. It's not sinful to be troubled. It doesn't mean that you don't have faith if you're troubled. Here's perfection. Here's God himself. And under the strain of what he's going through, he's troubled So troubled that he says in verse 38 to his inner circle of closest friends, my soul, the spiritual part of me, even though it's perfect, is overwhelmed with sorrow. Sorrow's not on the edges. It's not nipping at me. It has flooded me. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
My soul is so sorrowful that it could kill me. That's how I feel, guys. So please, stay here with me. Please be with me. Have you ever been in a hospital bed? Maybe someone you love is in a hospital bed. And because of the hookup and everything, you can't talk, but there is just something about being able to touch that hand of that person who's there for you. We long for that. We're made for a relationship. And here's Jesus in this humbled form, and he's saying to his closest friends, guys, stay close by. I just need to know that I can touch someone. Uh, What I'm going through is so overwhelming for my soul. It's an incredible moment. That almighty God is alone because those guys fall asleep. That almighty God is abandoned. That almighty God is crying. That almighty God is agonizing. That he's shaking and sweating and physically overcome by emotion. Look at verse 39. Going a little further, he fell. Have you ever had emotions so strong that your knees buckle? Emotions so strong that you literally can't stand? Jesus has. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. I'm about to be squeezed out for the forgiveness of all of humanity, and I know the mission, and I know why it matters, and I believe you, but Father, is there any other way? Is there any other plan? We started this series with Paul's thorn in the flesh and three times Paul prays that God will take it away. Three times God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul chooses to say, okay, God, if you say you'll bring goodness from this, then I'll choose to believe you. He was just following the example of Jesus who prayed three times, Father, please take this pain away from me. So when you have a pain in your life and you're praying and you're saying, Father, I don't know how good could come from this, please take it away, and he says, I have a plan, and you have to choose to trust him, Jesus has been there. Jesus agonizes in this moment. It's an important note for you to know that Jesus has felt what you feel in your suffering. He relates, and it's great to have a friend who relates, but how much better to have a friend who can relate and who can help. Where we fail, like Adam and Eve, none of us perfectly trust the Father in our pain. Jesus was perfect. And now you don't have to be perfect, because he was. All you have to do is place yourself under him by believing in him. Here's the third key moment in human, the human story that if we want to reconcile a good God with our pain, we have to have some understanding of. It's actually our present moment, and it's this, that in this collapsed world, Right? We use the picture of Rocky Flats. It's contaminated, it's broken, it's fallen. Jesus, right now, he will sustain you now. You can experience God now. It's not the same as when we get to paradise. That's gonna be a whole other experience. But you can experience him now in your suffering. He will sustain you. The Father sustained Jesus through Gethsemane. And God will use his people, his word, And his spirit, those are the three primary things he's going to use. Worship music from his people. A hug from one of his people. A text or phone call as you reach out to another Christian. His people, his word, his spirit. He will use those three things to sustain you. 
in this broken world. I'll give you a, a visual of this. This is a, a map of a collapsed mine. A true story. You might recall back in the year 2010, there was a, a gold mine in South America. Uh, it, it went more than a mile deep into the earth, and there was a collapse in the mine shaft. And so these 33 miners were trapped almost a mile underground. And for a long time, the whole world assumed they were dead, but rescuers kept drilling down. You see there the, the black, two black lines and the one red one, that's where they would drill down uh, with, with a drill about this big around, and they would drop down these tubes. And one time the tube came back up and there was a note the guys said, we're alive in the refuge. They had gone to this place in the mine that was designed as a refuge. That's a, that'd be a great name for a church, the refuge. Because that's what we are. We're in a world that thanks to the people before us and, and Adam and Eve and Satan and somewhat to ourselves, it has collapsed. None of us is going to last more than 100 years down here in the debris and in the dust. And what the church is is people who found the way out. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets back to the surface. No one gets up to paradise except through me. So the way is narrow, but it is open to everybody. If all seven billion people alive today want to line up at the bottom and come up one by one, I'll take you all. It's narrow, but it's open to everyone. For 69 days, these miners survived underground and the rescuers started to drop down supplies. Here's some of the supplies. They dropped down clean clothes, toothbrushes, food, <laughs> a PlayStation it looks like, pocket New Testaments. Here's a picture of these guys as they're awaiting their rescue. When I see this, what I see is a picture of the church. Because, you know, there are, there are weddings and there are births and there are celebrations, but then there are moments when you lose a loved one or you lose your health and you realize this world, there's gotta be more than this. And the promises of Jesus that you had been believing all of a sudden start to really, really become real. And you look around and there's other people who are also suffering. I wanna show you uh, one of my spiritual heroes, a brother here in our church named Sal. I wanna show you how he continues to believe in Jesus through his suffering but also how God uses the body of Christ to minister here in this collapsed world. Go ahead and take a look. Part of the shock of it was the timing of it. I had the MRI on September 1st, and I didn't even get home. The doctor called me right away and said, you need to come into my office. So um, I went to his office, and I said to him, now, doctor, I said, tomorrow's my birthday. It's September 2nd. I said, so you got to have good news for me. He says, I'm sorry, Sal, I don't have good news for you. He says, you got two brain tumors in your brain. And, it, and he started explaining it probably is what they call glioblastoma, which is a very aggressive, fast-growing cancer. And um, so that was a shock, obviously. And uh, then everything happened, started happening so fast. Within a week and a half, I, was, I had surgery to take out the two tumors. So everything was happening so fast. So <laughs> it was a shock. It's like, man, how do, you, how do you navigate through this? This is all brand new information. Then I was on radiation and chemo immediately and simultaneously for six weeks. Then I had to do a second surgery because I had water building up around the outside of my brain. 
So I went through that as well. You know, but I've, I've come along pretty well overall uh, since then. Difficult, a lot of trials. Um, it takes a lot of energy to live with brain cancer day in and day out. But praise God, there's a lot of things I can do. And I rejoice in the Lord every single day for the ability to do the things that I am able to do by His grace. Going through every day, not um, just facing it, you know. He can't get up and walk to the sink. He can't get up and get himself something. He doesn't get angry about it. I mean, he has his moments of frustration, but overall his attitude is not one of anger. He um, just accepting day by day, just trusting God for strength to get through this day. I'm constantly adjusting my attitude to keep my focus on Jesus Christ, to focus on running the race without giving up, because that's an act of obedience. Chris Fowler, he had me work door 10 one Sunday, and then Sal and his wife Karen pull up, and I help Sal get into the church, and then the following Sunday they put me back at door 10 again. As soon as Sal comes around the corner and he, I open the door and start talking to him, he's like, hey, I prayed you know, all the way here that you'd be here again. And uh, from that point forward, I always wanted to be at door 10 to help Sal get in. And, and from that point, our relationship you know, just grew. I'll say one thing. One thing that I'm learning is not to speculate. Okay, like I was recently diagnosed with another brain tumor behind my right eye. And I thought to myself, well, maybe this is the exabram that God has for me. And I said, no, you're not going to speculate. Do not speculate. You just trust God. If you start speculating, um, then you're playing God, right? Word of God says, um, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not into your own understanding. So I'm not going to lean onto my own understanding and start speculating. I'm going to leave it in the hands of God. Whatever He deems right for me, one day at a time, I just keep following Him. He's just, a, he's such a uplifting person. Every time I see him, he's praying for me, you know, when I feel like I'm the one that should be praying with him for him, but he's always the first to want to pray for others. Sal and I will get together and we'll just talk uh, about the things that's happened that week and share, and then we'll pray. And I just, I guess I'm just in awe how God can take a small moment out in the foyer and introduce a great Christian man into my life. You know, yeah, there's suffering, et cetera, in that regard, but I'm experiencing the grace of God as he manifests his sovereignty in my life and his, and, um, his goodness and his joy in that because I'm in fellowship with the God of the universe. And that's what we live for. That's what I'm living for. That's beautiful. We just celebrate Sal's faith. This is what the church is, what it's supposed to be. We're a bunch of trapped miners. And none of us gets out of this world alive physically. But there's a way out through Jesus. And there's a sustenance. There's a brotherhood. There's a, a camaraderie while we encourage each other that every day he's going to drop down our daily bread. And one day, the moment will come for each of us where will be rescued out entirely. That's the fourth thing, the last thing you gotta know. If you're gonna reconcile a good God in a broken world, Jesus will restore Sal. A hundred years from now, all of us who believe in Jesus, we're gonna be hanging out with Sal. And he's gonna be in a perfectly healthy body. He's gonna be eating, he's gonna be laughing, 
and there will be no death on his horizon, only life. Paradise. What we were created for, what you and your soul know that you were created for. Jesus will restore all who simply have the humility to say, God, I need your help. Jesus, I believe in you. You don't have to do good deeds. You don't have to pay money. You just acknowledge, Jesus, I need your rescue, and I believe. And for all who believe, we will be restored to that paradise where we'll look around surrounded by a sea of other people who've been made perfect by God. But you're going to know every person there chose at one point in their eternity, they chose God. And there we will experience what we were designed to enjoy. As those rescuers widened that channel down through the rock, they eventually made it wide enough for this rescue capsule called the Phoenix. It was designed by NASA, like a, a giant bullet pretty much with wheels on the side and using a steel cable, they would lower it down and the day came after almost 70 days trapped in the darkness that thunk this rescue capsule arrives. There's only room for one at a time. So who did the miners put in first? The sickest, the wounded. Now here's the thing, that rescue was open to all 33 of them, but each of them had to choose. Am I gonna step into that thing or do I wanna stay down here in this collapsed world? Each of them had to choose. 1 Timothy 2 tells you this about the nature of God. God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved. That word want is the Greek word for will or desire. The word thelema, this theme of choice. God's choice, his desire. He wants everyone to step into the rescue. And yet he dignifies everyone enough to say, choose. Do you want me? He wants everyone to be rescued. How do people get rescued? By the knowledge, same word we saw in Genesis, of the truth, which is that Jesus is God. I want to make sure you know that you've stepped into that rescue capsule. It's very easy. It's very simple, though it's hard because you have to um, give up your you rescuing yourself. Romans 10 puts it this way. Here's how you know that you've stepped into the rescue capsule of Jesus. Only you can choose it with your volitional will. Your girlfriend can't choose it. Your grandma can't choose it. Your spouse can't choose it. Your kids can't choose it. Only you can choose. And here's how you do it. It's very simple. You declare with your mouth, Jesus is God. That's a choice, isn't it? you ever made that choice you can make that choice today Jesus is God you don't have to understand everything about the universe to just say I choose to believe Jesus is God and you believe in your heart that when he died on the cross he rose from the dead to pay for your sins and give you eternal life you make that choice with your mouth and with your heart and according to the promises of God you will be saved for all who've believed that this is a real future moment. I love this visual. When one of these miners gets zipped up to the top through a mile of rock, and there at the top waiting for him is his wife, 70 days apart. For 20 of those days, she thought he was dead. He's alive, and now they're together. 
this is the moment when we wake up in paradise someday. Jesus is there to hug us and everyone we love who also believed in Jesus, who's gone before us, they're there to greet us. There's a mom in our church who has lost three children, two of them as adults. Uh, Two years ago, I led the memorial service for her 21-year-old daughter, Bree, who died of a brain tumor. She was down to one kid left, a guy in his late 20s, and a week and a half ago, in a tragic accident, he was killed. And I told Mel, my wife at home, I was like, I don't even know what to tell her. She's read I Am Strong about a dozen times. She's, then she texts me and she's like, these promises are so good. I'm like, how are you doing this? How are you, how can you lose three kids and be like, God is good? And she's like, it's because of his promises. I texted her this picture and I said, hey, Trudy, when I think of you, I just, I just think with tears in my eyes of this moment. When you'll be zipped up to heaven someday and Bree's there waiting for you and your son is there waiting for you. And she texted back and she said, knowing that day will happen, knowing it, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. These promises align with reality. I'll give you kind of a, a, a light moment and then we'll close out here. The other night, Mel took my daughter Evie to a concert and um, they got home really late. So they pull into the garage and we have two dogs and the dogs hear the garage door open and so they just sprint to the, the house door that goes out to the garage. And they're, they're at the door and I'm looking out the little kind of security viewer into the garage. I see the car, but the garage, that's not me. Okay, but that's, you know. <laughs> but the garage is still up. And so I'm like, I can't open the door. The dogs are gonna get out in the dark and you know, coyotes and stuff. We don't want that. So, I'm waiting for Mel to put the garage down, but the dogs are just so excited. Here is the dogs, okay? They're sitting there. The tails are beating back and forth. They're pawing at the door because they, they know the sound. They, they know the smell like mom's home. And it's this lame moment because I talk to my dogs, okay? But Mel's getting Evie out because she had fallen asleep in the car. It's taking forever and the dogs are so excited. And I'm looking through this little security viewer and I'm like, oh guys, if, if you could just see what I see. Like, if you could just see what I see. And in that moment, I'd just been texting with Trudy. And and I realized in that moment, like, this is what faith is. If you could just see what I see. Paradise is real. Reunions are real. Eternal life is real. And just like kids in a movie trying to look over a fence and they all lift each other up. They're like, what's on the other side? That's what we do here when we gather. That's how we talk to each other. There's more than this life. There's more than war. There's more than pain. There's more than suffering. It's real through Jesus. Here's how the Bible ends in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God is reunited. He now walks among his people again. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more grieving at funerals. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. Why? Rocky Flats is gone. The collapsed mine shaft is gone. The entire order that you humans thought was home and that you knew as normal but is full of infection and pain and evil, it's gone. Death 
will die. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bible starts in a garden, chapter one, ends in a garden, Revelation 22. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb, that's Jesus, the living water, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Same one that was back in Eden that gives you immortality and the leaves of the tree are for what? An olive press, the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Let me pray this for you right now. Father, strengthen our faith. Give us a view through the security viewer, just enough to see paradise is real. Our problems are resolved in you, Jesus, and you've left us here to scoop up as many in this collapsed mind shaft. We want to bring thousands with us, Lord. We pray for our sons, our daughters, our loved ones, that, that each of them would believe in you for themselves. We pray, Lord, that you'd strengthen our faith while we await your rescue. We pray that as you drop down daily bread, that we would be intentional to meet Sal and thousands others like him in our movement who need our encouragement and we need their encouragement as we wait in this refuge. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, if today's episode encouraged you or helped you in any way, we would invite you to keep following Jesus with us. We send out a daily video text devotional. You can receive that and you can learn how to gather with us online or in person for our weekend services. All of that is available over at cp.news. That's the letter C, the letter P.news on your phone or desktop or tablet browser. Thanks again for joining us and please join me again next week for the Connection Point Podcast.